Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey & Co. My name is Itamar Surovich. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitzrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat we cook from their books and from their culture, and this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. Tonight we are massively honoured to be joined by Stephen Harris of The Sportsman in Kent, a legend of a restaurant. We had the most incredible conversation about local produce, about the kitchens of Henry VIII, about oysters, about music, about family, about love and restaurants. Please do listen if you want to hear more about it. It was a great night. We have Stephen Harris here. And normally I try to kind of talk less, which is really hard for me, and let, let our guest uh, have the stage. But uh, I will start with my story of my first visit in The Sportsman, which is Stephen's restaurant, I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, we came not six months after we opened Honey & Co. My wife and I, we were so exhausted and kind of at the end of our tether and we said, all right, we have to get away. And we always heard about this place. Uh, it's kind of a mythical pilgrimage for chefs to go to the sportsmen. And we said, we're just going to close the restaurant for a Monday or something like this and uh, just, you know, take a break because we had to. And uh, we spent the night in Sea Salter and we did the little walk up to the Sportsman, which is just so lovely for the soul. <laughs> and uh, we came in. It wasn't at all what we expected. It was, I think, a fair description would be a ratty old pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't, you won't be offended? <laughs> Not at all. No. Yeah. No. No. I, 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 I feel free to, to say that because our, our restaurant has been described... <laughs> as uh, overpriced snack bar or uh, <laughs> all these kind of things and it kind of it's, there's something kind of nice about I'd like to get that. a t-shirt with overpriced yeah. snack bar yeah I love you that know, I yeah, love I that mean, this yeah. is TripAdvisor it's such yeah, yeah, it's it, a gold mine wear them as a badge of honour yeah yeah. that's the only way to deal with it so it, it was you know this mythical place and it was so ratty but the <laughs> minute we walked in we were welcomed like we came to someone's home and they offered us a drink they didn't ask us Oh, what would you like to drink? They was just offered us a drink. And we just felt instantly welcomed. And we had our meal, and um, the meal, of course, I don't need to say, it was exquisite. It was just so wonderful. And then at the end of the meal, Stephen came out of the kitchen and, you know, did a little round of the table. It was a Monday lunch, so, you know, there, there wasn't tremendous many of us. And we got to talk. And we said, yeah, we just opened this restaurant and it's actually going quite well, but we're just going crazy. We're exhausted. Mm. We don't know what to do. Every time we come into the kitchen, there's something else. We will never, ever get staff. 
that work as we like. We will never ever convey to our guests what we want to do. It would just it would just seem like impossible. And Stephen said, "Well, you know, it's six months. It's nothing. And the restaurant, it's it's a living creature, and it takes time to create its own culture. And then when it does, it lives." And the place kind of sorts itself out. So you just need to hang in there for, you know, as long as it takes. And it'll happen. And I can truthfully say that there's not a day gone by that I came to work and I have not thought of that sentence. And how true that is that a restaurant just happens. It just becomes a thing. And then it kind of, you know, kind mm. of like a kid, it walks on its own. Mm. So in many ways, Stephen is the chef that influenced most uh, what we do in Honey & Co, even though our food is so different. Um, and it's such a tremendous honor to try and repay a little bit of that hospitality. Oh, thank you. So welcome, Stephen. <laughs> Cheers. Yes, I remember it well, actually. I remember you coming well. I think yeah, I'd I seen you somewhere in The Guardian or something. Had you? I don't know why, but I it knew... It was very early days. I knew very, that very one of you had, was a big fan of Nico's. Yes. So I must have... And, and of course, Nico Le Dennis, who, for anyone who doesn't know, was my favourite chef. And, w and it was a meal at Nico Le Dennis's restaurant uh, at 90 Park Lane, which made me want to become a chef. So I felt a kind of a link already. <laughs> um, uh, because, the, you know... Uh, Actually, w when I read that in your book, I, I got goosebumps. Yeah, it was strange, isn't it? But, yeah. But that restaurant blew my mind. To and the extent that I packed in a reasonably well-paid job in the city and just went and got a job as a commie chef in Nico's in, in Waterloo no Nico wouldn't let me anywhere near his restaurant <laughs> I wrote to him I used to kind of sit in his restaurant and try and catch his attention nothing nothing no and now I'm glad because you shouldn't meet your heroes you should just well you shouldn't no don't meet your heroes okay yeah that's my view yeah because okay. they always disappoint you because you've built them into something and they're yeah. not what you built them into it's difficult they're what they are but you built them into something else and there'll be a big gap and lots of friction and it won't be nice so that's my view on meeting heroes yeah well it's all it's always good to have someone on a pedestal that you can aspire to. exactly yes a perfect perfect archetype that you don't you know that you don't disturb <laughs> by meeting them that's my view. So before that meal mm. in Nico, mm. you, you were working in fairness and you had the cooking bug or just Yeah, yeah, I did. I I I, I was a I was um a good amateur cook. Um you know, I'd have din dinner parties and uh I you know, I, dinner parties have got a really bad name now. I love dinner parties. What's better than knowing all your friends are coming around, get some great wine, cook some food, and, you know, and so some, you know, some bloke wants to show off with a barbecue or whatever, you know. I don't mind that. No. I, or I don't do barbecues, but I would slightly... They became a bit absurd, my dinner parties, because I would go to Marco Pierre White's for lunch on Friday... And then I'd recreate the meal on a Saturday night. Now that could be a disaster, couldn't it? That could be a disaster. But I had the chops, and that's how I learned how to do it. So and were you doing like seven courses? Not, not really. No, I was just copying three. It would be start a main course pudding. Um, I had a group, big group of friends, and maybe somebody would bring one of the courses, and maybe you know, it was just like that. It was just I was in my tw late twenties, early thirties working in London like you do with your group of mates 
that you tend to see a lot of, you know, before you'll get married and maybe move out and, or whatever, you know, the friend zone. And, um, you know, when you're still doing all that. So that was how I, I you know, I, I, that was the context within which I went to that meal, which was that I was a very good, I say very, I was a good amateur chef, cook, sorry, but I, uh, I didn't know what a Michelin starred restaurant was. This is 1992. And nobody, uh, uh, most people didn't know what Michelin star even meant. I mean, it didn't mean anything to me. And so a friend told me, you've got to go to this restaurant. So I went there and, um, had a meal that was the perfection just blew my mind and um i i it just one of those things you know i had to find out how i how to um how to do what they do and what what um, kind of tipped you over from saying okay this is a nice hobby to have to i'm gonna basically destroy my life and career for uh, yes that's right yeah it was a bit sad really it's a very sad story but which i i haven't i isn't in the book but I was on holiday with my brother in Italy and he drowned. And um, it was a very traumatic time, as you can imagine. And I, what happens when a tragedy like that happens is that you tend to think uh, that you better get on with what you want to do. You know, when you, you're affected by yeah. death, any death, it could be a good friend, it could be a grandma or grandpa or something like that. But that moment that you realise that life does, doesn't drift on forever... So that was what was my, that was the, uh, I think why I did something as stupid as packing in a really good job and going and getting a job as a comedy chef. But it was great as well, I mean, not the, the event, but it was great because I was in a kind of almost post-traumatic state, you know, because you get a big shock when someone's there one minute and bang, they're not the next. I was kind of aware, this might sound, it sounds almost cynical, I knew that I was in shock and that I had to find a way of dealing with it so I threw myself into food and working and that you know I just completely did that and then when I looked up five years later I felt a bit better you yeah. know you never feel you're never you're never going to get over those things you're going to have to learn to live with them and um, after that I just thought yeah so I just threw myself into food and and totally absorbed myself and how, how old were you uh 33 33, Jesus so complex. everyone around you were kind of 10 years younger. That's right. That was At least. The, yes, well, yeah, that that was the weird thing, was that I was I went and worked in a kitchen, and people are like, well, who's that, you know, that bloke? He's not one of us, you know, yeah. he's obviously... So, yes, yeah, so I had to deal with all that. But it was quite fun in a way. I quite enjoyed that, um, being the that strange bloke in the corner. What's he going to do? What's he doing here? Why, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's actually quite hard to get in yeah and to get to get sort of accepted and yeah yeah that's right that and, sort of and it gives you a benefit it gives you help it, it can be helpful no one bullies a 33 year old who's just come come out of the city you just yeah. got the because you and it's interesting because you realize how much is about confidence about body language and about privilege you know they call it white privilege now you know that kind of idea that well you're not going to bully me how can you how can you you know, uh, and so I came into kitchens and I was able to look after myself, able to handle myself. And actually, not that it, it was a big problem, for, but I think it is for some people, you know, the bullying and yeah. the, in, in the early days, certainly 20 years ago, yeah. there was a lot of it going on. Whereas, you know, for some reason, when you've got confidence and um, age... A little bit of bravado. And a maybe. bit of... Well, maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
yeah so but I know what you mean it was a bit strange and you were kind of doing the rounds at your favorite restaurant going to work at Stintier Stintier I well no not really it didn't work out like that that's what I thought I might like to do but it was a very strange journey really because I after I had the meal at Nico's there was about a two-year period before I gave up my work and in that period every Friday I would go to a top restaurant in London and they used to do these lunch deals then so it wasn't like I was spending a fortune I would go Saturday night occasionally or but most of the time, I'd just go and have the lunch just to see what this kitchen could do. So I, I, I ate at Nico's 10, 15 times. Marco Pierre White's the same. Um, I went to the Rue Brothers, a bit less, because I found their places very French and slightly... Uh, of a different generation. Yeah, a bit old school. And um, But I went everywhere, you know, Tonclair several times. So in that period, I kind of taught myself to cook. And what I would do is I would go to these restaurants get their cookbook, so I'd get Marco Pierre White's cookbook, go to his restaurant, order something that I knew was in the book or something that was roughly in the book, and then eat it. And then I'd go home the next day and cook it. What's it called? White Heat. White Heat. That's and such a good book. Yes. Well, all the secrets are in there, yeah. you see. But I've also learned that in the first cookbooks, chefs give their secrets away. Whereas they start to get a little bit, like after the fifth cookbook, Marco Pierre <laughs> starts making sauces out of HP sauce and ketchup mixed yeah. together. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, not stuff that you'd want to serve. White Heat has got all the secrets in it. So how to make great sauces is in White Heat. Um, yeah. And then the second book was a little bit, everything was shorthand, you know. I think he got a bit lazy. Yeah, a little bit taking a yeah, step backwards. Yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah, those were the books that I'd learned. And the thing was, was that my argument is, I don't know about you, but I always love, actually, you mentioned it. I love pictures in a cookbook because they tell you what something's supposed to look like. And for some reason, I think, if I see a picture and then a recipe next to it, it's like, oh, I get it. That's how we're going to, that's where we're going to end up. So they, 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 they serve a specific function. And if a, if a recipe doesn't have a picture, I'm less likely to cook it, a lot less likely to cook it. And... The other, but I always think, hang on, well, you know what it's supposed to look like, but you don't know how what it's supposed to taste like. But because I'd been to the restaurant and had it the day before, I also knew what it was supposed to taste like. So things like, you know, amateurs never season enough. They never reduce enough. They never understand. Look, if you've got a piece of meat and you've got a sauce, that sauce has to be double strength because you're going to be eating it with a piece of meat. Yeah. Things like that. So if you taste it separately on the plate... It's got to be super powerful, and you've got to use all the tricks, whether it's umami, salt, acidity, all those things in that sauce for it to be able to have an impact on that slice of meat you're going to put it with, you know. And just silly things like that, learning all those kind of little tricks that, um, that I suppose chefs learn as they go around. I just sussed it out myself by yeah. going to, you know. But as I say, flate the memory of the taste of the dish. Which is such, is a, such a huge advantage that you have, you know, starting your career. Exactly. Mm. So, you know, so many chefs would not have that kind well, of I, repertoire of, of tasting and experience. I still go, I still, you know, I spent 10 years standing in the corner at kind of events where all the chefs would meet. And I didn't know any, I don't, don't, it's not that pathetic, but, you know, I don't know anybody because I haven't worked for anybody. 
So they all, you know, all the chefs will be there. There'll be Tom Kerridge and Claude Bossy and Sat Baines and all that lot. And they'll all be like, hey, how you doing? Oh, doing right. And they'd all have worked with each other. And I'd never worked for anyone. So well, what they all have in common is an admiration for Stephen Harris. Well, so yeah, we get okay. on really well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's the only we get on really So that makes it easier, kind now, of an icebreaker. Now, but 10, yeah. 15 years ago, it was a bit harder. But the point is that they would talk about all where they'd worked. And I used to talk about where I'd eaten. And, and they used to go, ah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I never did sit down and eat yeah. that. You know, and they hadn't eaten in these restaurants. So they'd be in a kitchen with 15, 20 people, maybe on one section doing one tiny little job. And they would never have actually had the whole finished thing. Because actually chefs eating in their own restaurants or chefs going out and eating in restaurants is quite a recent phenomenon. Can you, can you eat in the sportsman? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I haven't for a while. Um, but it's completely different, isn't yeah. it? You know, you taste things in the kitchen, you taste things on the go, and, you know, you, 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 you can calibrate your, your, your palate. You can go, you have a tiny bit of it, and you kind of think, all right, is that, that might be a bit salty if, it, if, if I were to eat more of that. Yeah. So you drop that down. You know, and you can kind of work things out, but you cannot beat sitting down in your own restaurant. But it's quite hard because now people, you know, I've, if I do it now, it's like, oh, why is he sitting there? Why isn't he in the kitchen? Well, yeah, kitchen? Yeah. You know, people are, you can sense a dis bit of disappointment. But I, I have to, because uh, I have, have to, to find out what's going on. I know? find it so stressful. The most stressful experience <laughs> mm. is to sit down in, in one of our restaurants. It's excruciating. Yeah. I could not swallow no. even. No. It's so stressful. It's no. so important. I know. It's so important. You see everything wrong. Yeah. Everything wrong. Yeah. It's really bad. Well, ours, ours is weird because you get this sense of space at the sportsman, which people compliment me on, but I never knew was there. You know, it was an accident, which was that we didn't cram tables in. You know, we just, what we had was lovely tables made from reclaimed wood, you know, so that table also, that table there's an old barn from, you know, 10 miles over there. Those are the, posts from a church that was you know so there's stories behind every table but as a result we got lots of space so actually when you sit at the table you don't really notice what's going on around that much um so all these weird things happen but obviously mainly i'm focusing on the food yeah. you know um but yeah it is very important and as you say excruciating, excruciating. Yeah. yeah um so you've been working around for five years mm -hmm. not a lot of experience in kitchen terms no. And then you decide, okay, I'm going to open, not only I'm going to go and open my own restaurant, mm. I'm going to do it pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. oh, no, not, crazy, not, not near any transport no. or... No bus. No, no bus, not much no. of a human settlement around. No, none. It's just the pub, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. I must, uh, people think, oh, you must have been very confident. And maybe I was. I think, I think I knew. Because when I went to work in kitchens and I worked around, you see, I didn't work anywhere famous or anywhere with a Michelin star or anything. I worked in friends' restaurants. So a friend of mine had a Mexican restaurant in Canterbury. So I worked there for six months in a Mexican, you know. Because all I needed to do, I could cook. I just needed to find out how restaurants work. I didn't even know that while you're eating your starter, they're cooking your main course. I didn't know that. You know, little bits of information like that. I didn't understand how to read a ticket. I didn't, all those things. And I don't know if you remember, I remember my first moment 
in a kitchen with paying customers. I can remember the first service when the orders came in. It was terrifying. It was like table five, blah 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 blah, blah. like right. table seven, table and like all of a sudden there's all these tickets up, and it, you know, it's just chaos. Or in my, for me, it's chaos. For these experienced people, thank God they know what they're doing. But it, it's terrifying that moment. You think I'm never going to be able to to overcome this. Um, and uh, that was in a, just a friend of my friend of a friend's fish restaurant. I talk about it in the book about how I ended up in a professional kitchen. It was a friend of mine took me down to a restaurant that a friend of hers owned, and he came over to the restaurant uh, to the table and just to catch up. And she just blurted out, "Oh, Stephen wants to be a chef." Um, can he come and try out in your kitchen? And um, and the guy, luckily enough, the guy was a guy called Billy Bryce. He was really nice, and he he said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, by Wednesday, you'll know whether you want to be a chef or not. And he, and he was right. Yeah, it's he very, was right. It's very because he knew true. that Monday and Tuesday yeah. just get over the shock, and then once you've got over the shock, you'll actually see. And he was absolutely right. Now I can't explain that, but the thing was, my point is that I could really cook already. Like, I could cook food that makes, you know, for my friends. And, you know, you can't trust your friends. Like, when I was in a band, they'd all go, oh, that's great, that song. Oh, what a brilliant. And you just know that they're just being nice. Uh, and Because they're, they're your friends. They want, you know, I do it as well. You know, I go to a gig where some friends of mine are in a band. It doesn't matter how terrible they are. I'm not going to tell them that at the end of the gig, am yeah. I? I'm gonna plenty of them. other people will. Well, there are plenty exactly. of people, exactly. Yeah. Or, the, or the, the lack of sales of tickets for the next gig yeah. might, might give them a clue. But my point is that you can't really trust your friends. But my friends were like, no, seriously, this is amazing stuff, you know. And they'd been to quite a lot of good top restaurants. So, And also, I, you know, if... Yeah, you could see a physical reaction in people. Yeah. And I knew by tasting it. Yeah. So I knew that I had something... That, that wasn't uh, common, um, but it was still a, a, a big a big leap. I mean, getting a pub in the middle of nowhere. The thing was, was that I come, I come from Whitstable, that's my hometown. And so the sportsman seems more remote than it really is. It's a little bit of a, a, a trick optical of the, illusion. It is a bit of an optical illusion because Whitstable at the time, back in 1999, was going through a kind of a... It was the trendy town to go to, to eat. Um, we, we are, it's an oyster town. The whole town was built on oysters. In 1793, they set up a co-op, very progressive. They set up a co-op in the town so that all of the people who worked on, for the oyster fisheries were co-shareholders. Now, co-ops were quite trendy. It was around the time of the Rochdale pioneers and all that kind of stuff. So the idea, and by the way, I think we're coming to co-ops will have something to say in our economy in the next 50 years because this kind of global like we were talking about big firms and everything there's got to be a backlash and it's got to be small cooperatives you know three people getting together to set up a business and things like that but anyway Whitstable was built on uh, on the oyster fishery company and all of the workers were co-owners and they would divvy up on on uh, july the 26th which i think is the feast of saint james who's the patron saint of seafood um they would divvy up the uh the profits and then they'd be a big party in whitstable and that's why we have an oyster festival even though the whitstable oysters are out of season because that was when the the kind of the oyster they, they would celebrate the season 
actually most of them would be off picking hops or strawberries and things like that. But um, the town, Whitsville, was built on oysters. Then a big restaurant opened in town, which I worked at for a year. A friend of mine opened it, uh, Richard Green, and it's called the Whitsville Oyster Fishery Company. And it was on the beach, and I don't know, everyone who was anyone came and reviewed it. You know, it was, it was back in the 90s, it was a bit of a... It was the darling of the, you know, kind of um, food writers and media, yeah. So everybody came down to Whitsville, and of course this is my hometown. I love restaurants, I know the people who work in these restaurants. So it was really exciting, it was a very exciting time. And I always thought Whitstable was get, you know, for us who'd lived there, was getting a little bit, like it was really full in the summer. And and I thought, hang on, if you open, if you open on the edge of town, just at, I bet you all these people will go, oh, are you still going to the Oyster? I know this little place, blah, blah. And I kind of thought that would happen. And it did, you know. I mean, luckily, I had plans. Like, from you could see the sportsmen from the Oyster Company. They're across the bay. I was going to start setting up fireworks on a Saturday <laughs> night and try and set up so that... Just so that people, we're here. We're here. <laughs> luckily, luckily, we little airplane. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Have you said? Do you know yeah. about the sports? Looking for a table yeah. for two. We got the oysters. Exactly. Yeah. So that was the that was the desperate plan. If it didn't work, Plan but B. Let's that say. was Plan B. That's right. But actually, um, so one, it's not quite as remote um, as it seems. And the other thing was that I'd worked in the town, and I have friends in the town. And when we started, I was in the kitchen on my own. My brother Phil was out front, and my sister helped us. So we didn't have a payroll yeah. for six months. Uh, so that's how we—that's how we got started. We got money. My brother Damien—I've got—it's all family. My youngest brother Damien had a record company, uh, which went berserk in 1998 because his friend was Norman Cook. Okay. And he and Norman recorded stuff for Damien's label. They came up with this uh, alter ego called Fat Boy Slim, and the idea was was that it was this mythical DJ who would make music out of old music. So what Norman used to do was he'd go to the Brighton Record Fair, buy a load of records, listen to them, and work out how he could patch together and make a completely new song out of old records. It kind of and worked for them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then they kind sold. of caught. That's right. <laughs> and in 98, the year before I opened The Sportsman, uh, Norman's album uh, sold 8 million records or something like that. And as a result, my brother Damien, who owned the record company, Skint it was called, down in Brighton, because um, he was always Skint. He wasn't after that, and he isn't anymore. So uh, he made all this money. And so when I needed 20 grand to open a sportsman, it was like, well, there you go, you know, small change. Kicking around under the... You know, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still, you know, but still pride said to me, You're ne- I'm never going to come back and ask you for more money. Yeah. You know, and we never have. And we've never even been overdrawn. Yeah. Like, that was quite important, you know. It was like, no, if, you put, if, you, if you're willing to give me 20 grand, I'll make sure this works. Yeah. Whatever I have to do. Yeah. And well, you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But those early days, three of you working it, mm. and who came? Like who? Yeah, I, was, I, was it the crowd that you thought? No, it wasn't. Because you see, I thought it would be my. I had a lot of friends in the town, and um, I thought it would be all there. I thought, oh, it'd be all my mates. You know, they'll come over and have something. And none of them. Well, they did in dribs and drabs a bit, but it just wasn't because they didn't have enough money. I didn't realise. You know, I kind of come from London and. 
I, you know, for me, eating out was very important. But I'd forgotten that actually, 20 years ago, people didn't have as much disposable income. They seem to have more for some reason nowadays. Do you think? I mean, I, do, I just I find it really strange. But it was the old older crowd. Yeah. The thing about Kent is we've got a fantastic in Kent we've got a fantastic um, crowd who go for lunch everywhere. So if you open a restaurant in Kent and you're all, and you're all right that you'll be fine at lunchtime and really? that pays the bills yeah yeah really it's amazing because people in london i remember when brett graham opened the Ledbury in 2005 i went and it had been reviewed by every paper rave reviews and i went for lunch on a monday and it was like there was three tables in it's like and then i went back to work on tuesday and we were full that's just kent's kent's got an amazing lunch trade and that's kept us who, going who'd have thunk it i know I know most chefs are quite shocked by it. Yeah. You know, because you walk in, you come in. I mean, most people are shocked, shocked anyway, because they walk into a place in the middle of nowhere on a Tuesday lunchtime, and it's full. That's quite a weird experience to walk yeah. into a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, and of course that happens all the time now because we're full every session. So, um, you know, that feeling of shit what are all these people doing here in the middle of nowhere oh, but you don't don't you have jobs people yes well that's the other thing what, <laughs> yeah they're all bank robbers and yeah, things like that. yeah yeah that's what it is or bank something yeah um so early days you know the kentish mm-hmm. lunch crowd yep they kind of discovered you yep suddenly or i don't know if probably it seems suddenly but mm. i'm sure it was very gradual to you mm this kind of place of pilgrimage and mm. you know very much you know a place that chefs go to and mm. kind of the industry talks about yeah uh, a place probably one of the first ones in the uk that was really involved in very local produce yes yeah that we were we were ahead of the How curve a bit there. it was it's i think still in mm. a way i don't think that any restaurant in the uk has managed to locate itself and be involved so much with mm. the produce of the region as much as you do. Yeah, yeah. As much as you do. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, very much uh, present. But how, how did this come from A to B? How did this suddenly happen or gradually happen? Um, well, I can remember, I always had this thing, I don't know why, about, I can remember when I lived in North London, I lived in Crouch End, and I was walking through Alexandra Palace with a friend of mine uh, in autumn, and there were some mushrooms, and then there were some blackberries. And I was looking around, I was thinking, this was before I was a chef, I was saying, you could do a dinner party just based on all the food in the, in Alexandra Park, you know. Yeah, and now every dinner party is based, is based on, food on food from, from, from Alexandra. Every yeah. single dinner party, So they're party, all foraging yeah. soil yeah. and all that no kind of stuff. No one's been so to Sainsbury's for months. No, that's right, yeah. <laughs> well, my friend, yeah. who obviously had to, uh, said, well, yeah, there's a Sainsbury's down the road as well, as if that was local, you know, so he did that joke. And um, I kind of realised that I, I'd had been a bit obsessed with it. And then I was working at this oyster company, the restaurant I was telling you about that opened up. I was working there, and a fisherman, one, it was, a, it was an August night, hot night in August. We're cooking a full restaurant, obviously, height of summer. And the fisherman turned up, with a load of bass in a fishing, you know, one of those proper big fishing trays. Anyway, we were so busy that we'd already sold six of the bass in this fishing tray. So I had to run out the back, because I was was plating up. I had to run out the back, gut six bass, quickly scale them, 
bring them into the kitchen, slice them like that, and they still hadn't gone into rigor mortis. And, and, and I sent, um, and then I was plating it up with some lovely cabbage that had come from a farm nearby, some potatoes from Thanet. And I, as I put that and I sent the food out, I just thought, God, somebody's lucky. That is just dream food. A whole roast sea bass stuffed with garlic and rosemary that lit hasn't even gone into rigor mortis with potatoes that were picked that morning and cabbage that came from there. And, and we, weren't, we weren't really going down that route, but actually the guy at the Whitsville Oyster Company was quite a visionary because when he interviewed me, he said, look, whatever you want to cook, we are a North European fish restaurant. We're not Mediterranean, we're not this, we're not that, you know. And, and so we had to cook like that. So we were very kind of Jane Grigson and that kind of, you know, influence. And, um, and then I, the, the area around the sportsman, if you read in the book, it's all down there, all about the history of it. It was basically, I didn't realise this until five years in, uh, that I was suddenly thinking, God, yeah, we use all the local farms. All our produce is local, actually. You know, in fact, during the summer, everything is local. 100% and I know a lot of people think um, you know like I go to restaurants I'm a bit of a cynic I'm like do you really get all that from there all that from there well yes we did and I was thinking oh that's quite an achievement and then and then I looked into the history of the area it turned out that the sportsman the area around it was owned by the kitchens of Canterbury Cathedral and that's in the doomsday book so 1086 you know a thousand years ago the um uh, sportsman was uh, or the area around the sportsman was put down in the doomsday but as we know it was a, a an effort to evaluate how much England was worth to the Normans and um, the land in uh, around the sportsman was owned by the kitchens of the Archbishop of Canterbury and my I studied history at university and I I was alerted. I just thought, hang on, that's amazing. One, Anyway, I bumped into a friend of mine who's an archaeologist. He writes a bit in the book, um, and it explains what happened, you know, which was that uh, I, I had accidentally located my restaurant in the middle of a medieval larder. <laughs> and, and suddenly, so I started writing everything down, and I, I wrote this list, and I promise you, it went all the way down a page of full A4, back down again. And these were all the ingredients that I could see from the restaurant, virtually. And, and just to explain it very quickly, the reason that it's such a remarkable location, the French have a word terroir, and cuisine de terroir, meaning cooking from the soil, from the, the landscape. And it means more than that, it's also about the weather. It's also about the shape of the landscape. You know, if you're into Burgundy, I'm massively into Burgundy wine. And, you know, you look at the hillside at Polini, Montmachet and Merceau, and there are dips, and you can see where different fields have a real advantage. You know, because you've got to explain why Montmachet in that field is worth £200 a bottle, and then Clavion next door is worth £60 a bottle. You know, there's, there are reasons. So... Um, terroir is a very I'm very interested in but the thing about the sportsman is it's on it's on an estuary now estuary right that could just be the sea but no estuaries are where shellfish come from because they like to live in the kind of very rich uh, you know what we think of as you know that kind of black alluvial stuff that you get at, uh, rivers coming out to sea 
so estuaries. So we got the best oy- some of the best oysters in the world just there, like outside the pub. Uh, we've got mussels, cockles, winkles, whelks. Uh, we've got a beach which has got all the different types of seaweed on it. Which, by the way, then no one, no one was using uh, seaweed in their cooking. So that was another thing that we kind of found that we could get an advantage. You know, make you know, made our food more special. Then you've got the sea, and out of the sea you've got mackerel, bass, turbot, brill, cod, you know, all that fish from the sea. It's called the sportsman because it's a, you know, that's where they used to shoot. And we found old, the old bag, you know, that they would, you know, how much, there'd be teal and widgeon and pheasant and all that stuff they would go shooting around there. Um, Then it's on a salt marsh and where they used to make salt. So, outside the door of the sportsman right outside there are sheep grazing we buy those sheep and we cook those sheep and also there are that's where they used to make salt and they'd send the salt over to canterbury um, and you could see the road through the woods where that would go and then i'd been buying food uh, meat and animals whole animals from monks hill farm for four years before it's the monks you know i hadn't I hadn't put two and two together. It's called Monks Hill Farm because that's where the monks used to farm a thousand years ago. So all of a sudden, I suddenly realised... And then, you see, that's one little bit. So I thought, well, they used to make salt out on the marsh, I know. Um, you know, Because by then, local food was becoming a bit of a thing. And I was a li- I'm a little bit competitive. And I went, you want to make local food? Right, we, we make our own salt. It's like end of argument, isn't it? <laughs> No one's, you know, no one's going to top that. So we made our own salt uh, and we cook our tasting menu with salt made from the sea, just as they did a thousand years ago. Uh, And then I extended it out a little bit and I suddenly realised, hang on, I'm in Kent, you know, the Garden of England. So just down the road, five, six miles, well, in fact, all around the sportsman, out the backs of the sportsman, which you won't see when you go there, they grow raspberries, strawberries, cherries, Plums, apples, pears, uh, I could go on. I mean, uh, all of those are all grown. And by the way, they're not just grown there. These were the first places, in a lot of cases, where these fruits were grown and developed by Henry VIII's gardener 500 years ago. So, in other words, why is that important? It's important because 500 years ago, this was the best place to grow them. Before you've got any kind of you know kind of science behind it before you've got any kind of fertilizers or anything to or you know polytunnels or anything in other words this is the best this is where this stuff grows without all that it grows here because the climate's good it's relatively dry it's very sunny it's very bright so that's just a little bit further along then you go to thanet and you've got some of the best potatoes cabbages brassicas because of the soil uh thanet's very flat it's got very kind of iron rich soil then you've got, um, and then the middle of Kent is known as the Weald, and basically it's, it's grass, it's lush green grass, just like you get in Normandy or um, Charente in France. In other words, the best, 
this is where the best dairy comes from. So I went to a farm out there, I found this amazing raw Jersey cream, unpasteurized, you know, big, and I went there and I remember the morning, these big beasts were, had steam coming off them and it was, the sun was coming, it was, had been up a, an hour or two and they were chomping on this wet green grass and I tried, tried this cream and it tasted of iron and roses and all these complex things, you know. And so I took that and made it into our own butter. Because I was, I was like that posh butter, that moment at the beginning of a meal where you get your butter and your bread. I love that bit. And, um, and so I started making my own butter. And, you know, this is where... You, we, we were the first restaurant in the world to make its own salt, make its own butter. Now you go and everyone makes their own butter. But that, you see, when people say to me, well, how do you know you were the first? I said, because I can remember the moment of inspiration. It wasn't I read about somebody making my, their own butter. It was I had this butter that I got all the way from the farm. And I can remember looking at the date thinking, oh, it goes out of date tomorrow. And like it's a tub of cream that big. And we used it in the restaurant, but we hadn't been that busy. And I thought, my mum used to say, don't overturn the cream when I was whipping the cream for the apple pie on Sunday afternoons. She said, don't overwhip it or you'll get butter. So I thought, oh, I'm not going to waste this stuff. So I bunged it in a blend, turned it, overwhipped it, and I got butter. And I didn't just get butter, I got the best butter I've ever tasted bar any French butter that I'd had up to then or anything. And then I added some of our salt to the butter and got like that, you know. So I can remember, you know, that's, that, that was what I went through. And I was going through this in 2004, 5, 6, and it was getting freaky, you know, it was quite freaky almost, the way that it was just all landing in my lap, all these amazing things. And then that was really where that, Sorry, I can't remember what you asked. And then, was, uh, <laughs> no, this is exactly... And then people start to, to react to this. People start to seek this out. We'd always been... There's this guy making yeah. its own butter. We have to try this. There's, this was know. very interesting, yeah. But you know how it happened? How it, you see, we were always a quite successful local restaurant. Jay Rayner came down in 2002, three, sometime around there, reviewed us, gave us a great rave review. Um, and so, you know, we get Guardian and Observer readers coming down. Then the Telegraph reviewed us, gave us, a, again, a stunning review. So a few more came. We had good local trade. We had that thing I said about the summer, about people, you know, being that little place on the edge of town, you know, keep, keep it to yourself. And, of course, thing. the mysterious Kentish lunches. And, yes, the, 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 the yeah. very, uh, thankfully, the uh, great Kentish lunch trade. What happened, though, was that around the time that I was doing all this, there was a lot of people on food forums in the inter on the internet. I don't know if anyone remembers E Gullet or Chowhound. Right. Well, they were for obsessives, real obsessives. So they were forums. We don't get them anymore. Twitter and Instagram's kind of seen them off. They were food forums where people who were really into one subject would post, and then loads of people would make comments. So someone on E Gullet would go to arpege and say I just had my, the best meal of my life you know and then everyone would be like oh how much was it and uh, which menu you know so it was all kind of tips and it was just people sharing information about restaurants and anyway that went nuts because uh, there were these kind of they're basically they're early adopters of the idea of going all around the world to eat in amazing restaurants they were that obsessed anyway around about 2007-8 we became known to them and so 
these bloggers, this is why I've got a good, I, I'm one of the few chefs that I know who's got a very positive uh, view on bloggers. Because they came, these people came, you know, there's a guy from New York who has a blog called A Life Worth Eating, you know, and he's off around the world, he's, you know, I just saw him on Instagram and he's on some island in the Pacific, you know. These people, I don't know where their money comes from, I'm not interested, but um, he came and raved about it on his blog. A guy called Chuck Eats came and did the same. Ulterior Epicure, they've all got great names. Anyway, these people were writing blogs which the really obsessive foodies were reading. And this was a magic, it was a magic period because I loved it. I learned about Noma, you know, through them. I learned about Farvikan through them. I learned all these great little restaurants in weird places around the world. And I'm a restaurant anorak, you know, I still am, you know. I'm a train spotter when it comes to restaurants, right? Tick, I've been there, right, where's next, you know? And I'm really, it really excites me. And they, um, anyway, they all just, they came to the Sportsman and as each review came out, nobody in England knew what, nobody had a clue. Everyone thought, oh, I know what is really happening is Long Clume in yeah. Cumbria. You know, he's doing blah, blah, blah. And, and I love Simon. I'm very good friends, a good friend of Simon. And, um, but, you know, he was still doing molecular gastronomy, you know, and which he'll freely admit. And the angle of doing kind of local foragey. We, we try not to use foragey because I, I, I find it slightly alienating. We just pick what, you know, like this morning, I woke up, my window was open, and I got the first smell of elderflowers. And bang, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got my elderflower head on at the moment. So... You know, um, add that into all those things I told you about, by the way. We've got, you know, we, we, we forage, we pick seaweed, elderflowers, blackberries, rose hips. You know, I could go on and on and on. So that was what it was. And these people, these bloggers started coming and writing the most amazing reviews. You know, this is one of the most essential restaurants in the world. You must get here. And that's what happened. And so chefs and food writers and all those kind of people came because of these these um the geeks the geeks exactly yeah, the the geeks. exactly the geeks will that's why i love the, the geeks yes. i thought when ed miliband was getting a kicking in that election it was like sell him as a geek I'll vote for him. <laughs> who do i want running the restaurant some arrogant tory or do i want a geek who might actually do some work always the geek yeah exactly always the geek yeah yeah um this book came out Which is strange that it only just now came out. What, that it took so long? Yeah. I know, because I didn't realise. You see, I thought, look, we've got a Michelin star, we're, you know, kind of number one, now we're number one restaurant in the country, have been two years in a row, number top pub in the country. For I just thought, well, someone's going to come and ask me if I want to do a book. No one did? No one did, no. So, uh, and, and I, 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 I just thought, oh, okay, I'm not going to go out looking for it if no one wants to... But then Amelia, uh, the, the, la the lady at Fiden, who is kind of the head honcho, particularly on the food side, um, she, I'd done some work. Basically, when Renny Redzepi was launching his book, he said, she said, you can, have a, I'll do it, you can have a meal anywhere in the country where do you, to celebrate. Where do you want to go? He said, the sportsman. And um, so he came, and so did Amelia. And then the next year, 
they they just won the world's top 50 restaurants so the next year the night before the awards they wanted to bring all the chefs from the world's top 50 restaurants it's not stressful about 35 of them <laughs> and um they and so they came I on sunday night yeah yeah no well it was yeah i mean except that they, you know, you've, there's you've got the good and bad on each shoulder and i thought no they're coming because Reddy's coming back for a start. And when the best chef in the world wants to come back to your restaurant, because everyone could come to your restaurant, but when they come back, it was like, oh, okay, Jesus, you know, he actually likes it. And uh, so, um, anyway, through that, through the fight, that was the fighting connection. But uh, did you, this is something that you wanted to do, or is you just never got around to it? Oh, no, I'd always thought we should do a cookbook. And my brother was always uh, the one who put the money up, fat boy. Uh, skin records one he'd always been like oh god you lot you know why haven't you done a book yeah you should have done you know and it's like well one i'm lazy uh, i was kind of putting off the work that was one reason and the other one was I just, as i said i just thought someone would come and say do you want to do a book anyway fiden came and had a lunch a couple of years ago uh, a work lunch they'd all gone to the turner center in margate for a day out and they had a big table at the back room and the next day i got an email saying do you want to do a book and i just email back saying yeah yeah and that was it <laughs> yeah it was as simple as that uh the book is is magnificent i have to say no, thank you it, first of all it won every award imaginable and any award out there for cookbooks it won very um, uh, justifiably so it is full of these stories about the restaurant and the place and hmm. much like the sportsman for me it's more than a collection of recipes it just leaves you with a definite mm. sense of place and yeah. something more that hope i'm glad that comes across because that was very deliberate also know. what what i loved about it is that the team is there yeah because it it is it's a group effort always yeah, of course but it there's is. always I'm one the gobby one out the front yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what i say in it i say you know it's like these are all the people that's why they're in there you know these people are giving their lives to it you know uh, because they love it, because they enjoy it. You know, it's really nice to be... It's really, there's something really nice about turning up to work in the middle of nowhere um, and there's a buzz and an energy, you know. There's never a day when it's... Mm, no. Like that. There's a kind of energy. And that's partly... Uh, well, they say they say that's partly down to me because, I, uh, you know, I kind of... I've always, you know, I'll come down in the kitchen and be like, right, I've got this idea. And they're like, you know, but actually they love it, you know. Yeah, 15 it, minutes before yeah, service. Exactly. I do it at 8 o'clock on a Saturday mm. night. I've been banned from the kitchen because of it. They'd say, For good no, reason. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk just a little bit about music and the influence that that has on you. I was just really struck listening to you talk about going to eat at restaurants and trying the dishes and then mm. learning from that. It seems really similar to the way that musicians often listen to a CD yeah well I, I'm I'm I was a musician um, when I was 15 I was um, I was in a punk band it was 1976 77 and I got band together with my friends from school and we got a record contract and we did um, there's stories in the book about what how that we used to, my band used to practice down the road from the sportsman and we used to drink, at the, go to the pub afterwards and uh, have meetings about how this, we were doing an album, come, would come together. And um, how I learned how to play guitar was I used to 
cycle up to Kent University, go and watch. I mean, the bands I saw are just ridiculous. The Jam. I saw Joe Strummer's band before he was in The Clash, the 101ers. Um, I watched all these bands at Kent University. I would then rush home on my bike and copy exactly what I'd seen them do with their hands. And that was how I learned to play guitar. And I just suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting, because it's quite similar to how I learned to cook. You know, going to the restaurants, eating the food, and then copying it, going home and copying it. So, uh, and then I suddenly thought about music, and I suddenly realised, and I write about it in the book, um, I, uh, I see food like I do music. So I see the bass, like, you know, we used to have these things when I was a kid, they probably don't have them anymore, called graphic equalizers right so you get a little box underneath your stereo and it would what you could play with all the frequencies so if you wanted really bassy like music you could turn that bit up but you could and maybe it really trebly but not much middle or whatever so in other words you would balance equalize the 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 sounds the bass the treble all the different ranges anyway that's how i see music so when i'm finishing a source i will taste it and I'll go, first of all, right, uh, how much, is there enough salt in there? And that's base. Then it'll, treble is acidity. So I use lemon like I use treble. So I like very trebly guitar. And so I turn the treble right up on my guitar and on my amp. And then if I'm making a sauce, I'll add quite a lot of lemon. And the weird thing is I don't want my sauce to taste lemon. So, for example, try it next time. Um, like you've got a gravy, you've just made a sauce, a gravy, right? How can you improve that? Well, assume you've got your salt levels right and you've got your middle, which is umami. Look to the book for that bit. Uh, add a squeeze of lemon and a little bit of butter and just stir it in. Do it to a tin of baked beans. When you, next time you, you, know, you open a can of baked beans, add a knob of butter, squeeze of lemon and stir it in. It will taste m- amazing. And that's just called dressing in restaurants, in cooking. Last minute when you dress something, like a sauce. And that's how I think of food. Just like the sportsman is maybe kind of a representation of the area. Mm. I think this book is such a good ambassador for the place because it's so not just the food and not just you know you it's and and the growers Mm. and the history it's just such a rich Mm. you know so much going between between the 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 covers of this book that i just thoroughly enjoyed it please a big big hand to steven here Thank thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Honey and Coke. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That will be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kahn, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco.com.